spending our weeks in circles, no pun intended, talking about experiencing breakthrough in our lives through praying differently. And this week I want to do something called circling back. We've been talking now for three weeks about what it would look like to live like Honey the Sage, the legend that sort of started this whole conversation, the sage who lived in the time before Jesus and who literally drew a circle in the sand and dropped to his knees and began to pray to the Lord and said he wasn't going to move until God moved. And so that first week I issued a challenge at the end of service. I said, maybe you could circle your calendar. Maybe you could circle yourself. Maybe there's something on your heart. Maybe there's a person in your life. But the, the challenge was this. I'm going to invite you to circle something for 21 days. I want you to circle at least one thing for 21 days and see what happens. So I want you to grab your bulletins this morning if you, if you got them. There's some empty space there. And I just want you to take a minute and maybe write down what that thing was that you circled. And while you're jotting that down, I'm going to ask a big question. If you don't have it, just think about it in your mind. It's okay if you can't write it down. But I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you to be brave. Would anyone here say that in 21 days they saw God do something as a result of their prayer? I see a hand. I see another, a couple. Here's the bigger question. How many of you would be willing to admit you didn't see anything? Who's going to be brave enough to say, I prayed for 21 days and I didn't see anything? Okay, there are at least a couple of you who are fearful to stick your hand up, and I get it. That's like pretty vulnerable. What if I told you that the thing I was circling for 21 days? What if I told you I'd been circling something intently every day for 21 days and I haven't seen anything happen? Does that make you feel a little braver to admit that maybe you haven't seen anything either? Because here's the thing, friends. Some of us have been circling something intently and God has moved in response to that. And for some of us, God hasn't. But I want to illustrate a principle this morning, and to do that, I'm going to need a volunteer. And I'm not going to ask you to drink anything or say anything even. I just need you to come stand here with me. So is anybody brave enough to volunteer? I will. Come on, Shirley. <clears throat> come on up. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I want you to hold your hand out in front of me. Just one hand. Yep, and, and this hand represents the circle in which you have prayed, right? And my finger represents the hand of God. And what we've been praying is that God would reach down and touch. So what I'm going to ask you to do is tell the congregation, finally, when you feel my finger touching, when you feel me touching you, okay? When do you feel me touching you? When do you feel me touching you? Do you feel me touching you? No. Do you know I'm touching you? Yeah. Go have a seat for a minute. Sometimes, friends, when we pray, we're so laser focused on the thing that we're telling God we need him to do that we miss the fact that he's been touching us all along. Sometimes we're so laser focused on only the thing that we've forgotten that God is at work and touching and moving in us and around us and through us and for us all the time. But we don't see it because we're only looking for one thing. So maybe you've circled something 
now for three weeks and you think God hasn't done anything. And I want to tell you God's been doing a whole lot of things. And maybe you've missed it. You know, if you're reading along in the Word of God with us right now, we're in the book of Job, and I'm a couple days ahead in my reading, and I came across this passage in Job, this particular verse. It's a confession of Job himself, and I totally missed it until now. But man, it speaks to exactly what we're talking about. For God speaks again and again, but people do not recognize it. I'm circling something, I'm circling something. What I've said is, God, I want you to answer me regarding this. And it might be that God wants to answer me, but he's got to say some other things to me before he can address what I'm circling. But because I'm only listening for an answer that applies to what I've asked for, I don't hear him. Even though he's speaking again and again, even though he's touching me, even though I say he's not touching me, even though he's in the middle of my circle, and I say he's not doing anything, God is doing everything. And so the reason I wanted to circle back to all of that today, and perhaps by the end of the message you'll say, well, man, Pastor Joy, maybe you should have started there and not, not waited this long. Oh, but I think I'd had to. In fact, I know God wanted to, because here's the reason. It begs a question in us, why are you praying? What are you asking God for? What are you looking for? What's the motivation behind your prayer? Because when we pray, we typically pray for one of two reasons, but I want to offer you a third today. Most of the time that we pray, we pray because we want to get something from God. You know, you've heard it before, asking you shall receive, right? I'm praying because I want something from God. I want to get something. Sometimes, though, we actually pray because we want to say something to God. We spent a lot of time last year talking about the fact that sometimes what we need to say is, I don't like what you're doing. I'm not okay with what's happening. I'm hurting. I'm angry. I'm upset. You need to do this. You need to show up here. You need to show yourself to me. Sometimes it's not even what we're asking for. It's just that we need to say something to but I think that there's a third reason. And I think that if we laser focus in on that reason today, we'll discover that it really ought to be the only reason. And that reason is this. Maybe we ought to be praying to grow closer with God. Maybe it's not about four. Maybe it's not about two. Maybe it's about with. And I want to illustrate that by first going back to Honey's story, if you've not been hanging out with us, the summary is that the, the people were in the middle of a great drought in the generation just before Jesus, and they really stopped talking to God about helping them because they thought God wasn't listening. They were so laser-focused on seeing something that they missed what God was doing around them. So they called the only person that they knew who knew how to talk to God, and they said, you talk to God for us. And his name was Honey the Sage. And I told you just at the beginning of service, he drew a circle and he got down in the circle and he said, by the power of your great name, I'm not moving until you move. Do something. But I want to focus in for a minute on the why of Honey's prayer. Did he want something? Was he asking God for something? Do you remember his original prayer from that story? What was, what was Honey asking God for? You tell me. Let me remind you of what Honey prayed. 
Lord of the universe, I swear before your great name that I will not move from this circle until you've shown mercy upon your children. See, the people wanted rain. But I think that Honey prayed for mercy because he wanted something else. I think that when Honey got in the circle, yes, he was asking God for something, but his request wasn't so much for rain as it was for God to demonstrate his character to people. Remember, Honey's the only one that has a dialogue going with God consistently. Everybody else has given up. So when he draws the circle in the sand and gets down on his knees and starts to pray, he doesn't go out and ask God what everybody wants him to ask God for. It's because Honey has a relationship established with God. And when he gets in the circle, what he's really asking is for God to come near to his children and reveal his character, to show himself, to show up, and to demonstrate who he is in the presence of people. And before you think I'm reaching, before you think I'm exaggerating what this is about, even after the rain came, Honey stayed in the circle. And he said, no, God, what I'm asking for is rain of your favor and your blessing and your graciousness. What I'm doing, God, is not asking you to give us something. What I'm asking you for is to show yourself. Help a people who can only think about rain and not think about God start to think about God again. How were the people going to start to think about God? Because God sent the rain. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's a part of Honey's prayer we know where he says, I pray for rain that fills cisterns, pits, and caverns. He does vocalize at one moment. He's asking for rain, but not because he wants water. He wants the revelation of God to come back to a people who have forgotten about him, who've stopped believing that God can and that God will. And Honey could do that because Honey already had a relationship with God. He was drawing closer to develop a deeper relationship with God and then interceding on behalf of a whole people who needed the same thing. Honey knew his why. And it was for connectedness with his creator and to invite a people who had forgotten who they were connected to to find it again. And now maybe you say, listen, Pastor Joy, that's great, but it's a legend. It's not in the Bible. And you told us that you were going to show us from God's holy word that what you're telling us is true. So let's do that. Daniel, the book of Daniel. Maybe you've heard of that guy. Chapter 6. We're going to step into his story today, and I'm going to illustrate for you that I believe truly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the greatest purpose for our praying is not what God can do for us or what we want to say to him, but that what God wants to happen in that dialogue is for us to deepen our relationship with him. And Daniel illustrates that better than anyone. Daniel chapter 6, and I'm going to start in the first verse. If you have your Bible or your phone or you want to follow along on the screen this morning, listen now to this story and see if you can hear the answer to the question, what is Daniel's why? <clears throat> Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces. He was king at the time. And he appointed a high officer to rule over each province, and the king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. 
So Daniel and his buddies are essentially VPs in the kingdom. And they're in charge of everybody else. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. And because of his great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. Flashback, by the way, to the story of Joseph in Genesis, okay? Daniel is highly favored. He has wisdom. And Darius the Mede says, this is the guy I need to put in charge of all the stuff so I can live the lush life of kingdom. The other administrators and high officers began to search for faults in the way that Daniel was handling government affairs, but they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. So the administrators and the high officers went to the king and said, Long live King Darius! We are all in agreement. Lie number one. We're all in agreement. We, administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors. We, everybody except the guy that we're trying to trap. We're all in agreement that the king should make a law that will strictly be enforced, give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed, an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking for God's help. This is the word of God for the people of God. And today we give thanks for it. Now before you decide that this story seems like a little bit of a left turn from answering the question, what is Daniel's why? I want to tell you this. Look again. Because I think this story is all about the why. Daniel, you might know the guy, got three friends, Rack, Shack, and Benny. At least that's the Veggie Tale version, right? He's got three friends. He wouldn't eat the king's best food, and yet he appeared wiser and stronger, and he was lifted up. He had three friends who got themselves into a little bit of trouble over their own prayer lives. Things got a little hot under the collar for them, if you remember that story. And yet God delivered them. If Daniel is all about Daniel, then his place in the kingdom as one of three VPs, his eventual promotion to second in the land ought to be at the front of his mind. So when the king's law comes down, he does one of two things. He stops praying for 30 days. Or, at the very least, he shuts his window and goes and finds somewhere else to pray. If Daniel is about Daniel, if Daniel is self-centered, if he's concerned about himself, because, after all, a living Daniel is better than a dead one. He is a leader for God's people, who's continually praying for their deliverance from exile. A living Daniel is a good thing. 
But for Daniel, living isn't living unless he's living with the Father. So Daniel makes a decision. And he goes home and he does what he's always done. He builds relationships. Three times a day in the presence of the Lord, with his windows open to the holy city, he gets on his knees and he prays. And do you notice he doesn't have a pity party? Lord, could you help me out of a jam? This is not my best day. No, he gives thanks. God, I couldn't be in this position without you. You've shown me your favor. You've put me in place and position after place and position of opportunity. You're so good. We're exiled in a land and life could be a lot worse for us, but you've made provision. You're watching over us. God, you're so good. Daniel's priority isn't himself. Daniel's motivation isn't himself. He didn't put himself first. He reveals his why through his actions. He puts God first. His motivation was to deepen his relationship with his creator. He wanted connection. And don't misunderstand, Daniel did pray for stuff, and that's okay. Earlier in Daniel's story, there's a moment when a different king, not Darius, we'll call him Nasty Neb, okay? A different king has a dream, and it really messes him up. And he sends word to all the wise people and says, listen, somebody needs to interpret this for me. But he throws a wrench in the mix. Because Nasty Neb doesn't say, I want you to come and interpret my dream. What he says is, I want you to tell me what I dreamed and what it means. And all the smart people in the kingdom are like, uh, I didn't go to school for that. I, I mean, you've put, we can't do that. And so here's why we call Neb nasty. Because Nebuchadnezzar orders all of the wise men in his kingdom killed. You can't do what I want. You don't lose your job, you lose your life. So one of the king's servants arrives before Daniel and his friends and says, here's the deal. Tomorrow, it's that you're, it, you're done. Like, I don't know how the king's going to do it. I don't know if it's gallows. I don't know what it looks like, but it's over for you and your friends. And Daniel inquires why. And when he's told what the king's problem is, you know what Daniel does? He gets Rakshak and Benny and he says, let's pray. And he asks God for divine wisdom. And God delivers. Because we serve a God who delights in doing things for his children. It is okay that we ask God for something. God cared about Daniel's needs and responded. God cares about our needs and wants to respond. Our petitions, our needs, our concerns, when we ask him for healing, when we ask him for deliverance, when we ask him for provision, God cares deeply about the things that we care about. And us caring about those things is okay too. But if we come to him about us, before we come to him about him, we've missed the point. When Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, he illustrates this point profoundly. He told them, don't bring your list of personal stuff before you bring your love for the Father. In some, he said, put the thys before the mys. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Hallowed be thy name. It's all the front end of the Lord's prayer. Then give us our daily bread. Forgive us of our sins. That's the second half. We put the thys before the mys and we put it in proper order. Because it's developing a relationship with God that's the most important thing that's happening in our prayer life. 
When I pray, when I pray, I have to ask myself, why am I praying? What am I praying for? Am I praying for his will or for my will? Because the purpose of prayer, friends, is not to persuade a distant and disconnected God to do my bidding. The purpose of prayer is to build a relationship with the one who made me. And even more, to align my will with his will and in partnership with him to ask him to bring his will to come to pass on the earth for the lifetime I'm living. That's the nature of prayer. We want God to change our situations and he wants to change his servants. This is about relationship for him. Does he care about our situations? Yes, but he cares more about us than our stuff. When people come to me in crisis, my question is, how is it with you and Jesus? Yes, I care about what you're struggling with, but I care more about your relationship with him. Because here's the thing, you want him to fix your stuff, but if you're not right, then it ain't going to be right, even if that situation gets right. To pursue a relationship with God, to dialogue with him consistently, he wants our first priority to always be building a relationship with him. He must be our motivation. Why are you praying? He must be our motivation because our why is not a what. It's a who. Our, our why isn't what I want God to do for me. Our why ought to be that I want to do life with God. And everything that flows out of that looks radically different. When I come to God with that kind of lens, the reason behind our prayer shouldn't be our preference, but his purpose. It shouldn't be our relief, but his revelation. It shouldn't be what we bring, but to whom we bring it. Because here's the thing. When we rightly position God in that place and our conversation with him is first about him and then about us, you know what happens? He gets the glory. And God is interested in spreading his glory to everyone. And here's the great thing about the glory of God. It always benefits his children. God's glory always benefits his children. But I want to circle back a little further in Daniel's story to test that theory, just in case you're not completely with me. Remember I mentioned before that Daniel's friends, Rakshak and Benny, were praying to God for wisdom for revelation, because the king says, I have a dream. Now I need you to tell me the dream and what it means. And they get on their faces before God and say, look, we need your help. Right? God delivers. When Daniel finds out that the king's verdict, that Nebuchadnezzar is going to give him the axe, he goes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this is what he says. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy. Does that sound familiar? Honey prayed for not rain, but mercy. Daniel prays not to save his life, but for mercy. By telling them the secret so they wouldn't be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. And then chapter 2 tells us in Daniel that God gives the vision to Daniel. What did Daniel instruct them to ask? Tell them the secret. To whom did God tell the secret? 
He told it to Daniel. So the next day, Daniel arrives before the king, and this is what he says. There are no wise men, no enchanters or magicians or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Please don't miss this significant thing hidden in the text. We get so excited that all the wise men are going to be saved from death because God's given the answer that we miss a really important nugget in the middle of this story. Daniel went to his friends and they prayed that God would reveal to them the vision. But God gave the vision to Daniel. Daniel could have taken all the credit. He could have strutted up in there and said, this is why you made me the man. This is why I eat vegetables and drink water and don't eat your meat. I know what's going on. I have your answer. You can thank me later. But he doesn't. He didn't even ask God to give him the answer. What he asked was that God would impart the answer collectively, and God chose to impart it individually. But when he comes into the presence of the king, he takes not one iota of credit. He doesn't say, God told me what to tell you. What he says is, none of us can do this, but God can. So now let me tell you what God told me to tell you. Daniel isn't about himself. He could have thrown Rackshack and Benny to the wolves. He could have upstaged God. But instead, he gives all the credit to the Lord because glory belongs to the Lord. And remember when I said that when God gets the glory, it benefits his children. So circle back to the story now in chapter 6 that we read today. Daniel is praying out loud in his room with the windows open three times a day in defiance of the new king's orders to pray to no one but the king. The king's been trapped into making this order not knowing that he is ensnaring Daniel, whom he respects and values. It's not that Daniel prays because he wants to look better than anybody else or to exert his newly given power to say, well, I'm a VP and I don't have to do what you say. He's definitely not in his room praying for his own advantage. Make me better. Give me the job. I'm competing with two other people. This is what I want. Daniel's been in his room doing this all along. Never praying, oh God, make me greater than everybody. No, Daniel goes back to his room and does what he's been doing all along because why, if a God who when given the glory blesses his children, why stop now? We know from the book of Daniel that as Daniel prays, he's interceding. He's been told of the words from the prophet Jeremiah that there will come a day when the exiles will return to their homeland, when God will restore to them what's coming. And so Daniel starts praying for restoration. God, I can see your holy city. We miss home. But you're coming. Come quickly, Maranatha. Come on. I believe you. You will. Daniel's not praying to make himself look good. He's praying because God is good. And in order to deepen that relationship with God, he can make him known. 
But Daniel's decision makes his future look really bleak. The world says you need to look out for number one, and this is not Daniel's best plan at the moment. It, it flies in the face of all logic to do what Daniel does. But because Daniel did not stop, the story tells us he's about to become cat chow. They're going to throw him in a pit with lions. Hungry lions. Lions that the king keeps only for capital punishment. And Daniel will be their next snack. But that is not the end of the story. And I want to say to you today, I know that many of you who have grown up in church think you know the end of this story. But my question to you this morning is, do you? Do you really know the end of the story? Maybe you know the Sunday school version. But I want to tell you this morning what happens when the why of our prayer becomes a who and not a what. God gets all the glory. Now the king cared so much about Daniel that as they are lowering him into the pit, King Darius prays a pretty, makes a pretty audacious statement to Daniel in the presence of a few people who are gathered there. And he says, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. The king is confident. I don't know, Daniel, who your God is. Or what the two of you got going. But I know if you're going to openly defy an order that you know puts your life at risk. That the God of heaven whom you constantly, did you hear that? Constantly serve. Who you're talking to regularly because you're building relationship with him. God will deliver you. And the seal goes over the pit. And the king goes home. And do you know what he does? He fasts and prays all night for Daniel. He doesn't eat. A pagan king starts to pray because of the consistent faith of a man who was more interested in the why being a who than a what. Darius arrives at the pit the next morning. They remove the seal and he calls out, Daniel, are you there? And Daniel says, long live King Darius. Can you imagine the king in that moment? Does he drop to his knees and weep? Because someone who has perhaps become his friend, someone who has become a teacher to him about what he could have versus what he thought he had, is still alive. Yes, the lions got lockjaw. That's what you think is the rest of the story. But now let me tell you what really happens. Daniel says, hey, I thought I was human catnip, but God shut the mouths of the lions and they lift him up out of the pit. And then in a total unreasonable act of anger, Darius goes and gathers up everybody who was plotting against Daniel and throws them all in the pit. And maybe the lions knew they could get a treat or they could have a buffet. I don't know. But in that moment, Darius acts radically in his anger. The man who was fasting and praying for Daniel the night before acts radically in his anger. They round up everybody who's tried to do Daniel in, throw him in the pit. Because he's a pagan, remember? He's a pagan. That's what they do. And then, friends, this is where the story gets good. 
King Darius issues a new decree. Remember, the laws of the Medes and Persians are unchangeable. So the king issues a new decree, and this is what he says. All men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, because he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. That's the rest of the story. When a pagan king issues an edict that all the people of the land will worship the God of Daniel, who gave him a vision to interpret a dream, who gave him the wisdom to know what the dream was and then interpret it, who delivered three faithful men from a fiery pit, and who now has walked into a pagan kingdom where God's people are living on the fringes as outsiders and says, let me set this straight. Everybody needs to worship the Lord. I don't know this God, but I've seen what he's done. And Daniel's God will now be everybody's God. See, that's what happens when the why of our prayer is who and not what. God gets all the glory. And when God gets the glory, his children receive a blessing. Daniel's faithful, consistent practice of prayer three times daily, did you hear it in the text, just as he had always done, is evidence of the value that he placed in his relationship with God. He wasn't just asking God for something. He was being with someone. His priority in prayer was relationship. The outflow of that relationship was that because God delights in doing good things for his children, Daniel was in a position not only to receive them, but to extend them to other people. The why of our prayer. Why we are praying. Why you've been circling for 21 days and maybe beyond this, I hope. Why we pray should be God in his glory. Because when he's our motivation, we can experience breakthrough in our prayer lives. We can circle anything. Because he is the reason for the circle. We can draw bigger circles because he's able to do things that only he can do. I don't want small circles to do the stuff that I can. I want big circles where God can do only the things that God can do. So I can circle anything. I can draw bigger circles and I can stay in the circle because he can be trusted for every single answer, even when it's not the one that I expected or I thought I wanted. So I want to circle back one final time this morning to your circles, what you wrote down or what you've called to mind, the things that you've been praying for, maybe where you said God wasn't working, maybe where you said you didn't feel his touch except that you found out that maybe God's been touching you all along and you were just laser focused on one thing and missed his presence somewhere else. What is your why? What's been your why? Is it the answer to the question in your circle? Is your why the outcome of that circumstance? Or is your why to come closer in a relationship with the one who can give all the answers and does in his time and says in his word that he will work all things together, together for the good of those who love him and are called according to what? His purpose. What's your why? As you think about this, that this morning, the worship team is going to come and give us an opportunity to respond. So here's my challenge for you. 
Are you willing to take 21 more days? Are you willing to take whatever's in your circle and commit for 21 more days? To circle the same thing, but not because you're asking God for something as much as you're asking God to be with you, to change you. Because friends, the answer to every prayer is first, always, and only, God, what do you want to do in me? And then because of what you've done in me, what do you want to do around me and through me and in me for the purpose of your kingdom? I could have temporary satisfaction or you could get the glory and all of us will receive the blessing. That, friends, is up to you. You get to make the decision. God's invitation through Honey, through Daniel, and through countless other stories through the centuries is when we put him at the center of our circle. When he becomes the reason why we pray, then we can trust him for all the other things that fill in the space around him. His question to you today is, will you do it? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being in our presence today, for guiding us into your word, for revealing your character to us. Thank you that when you sent the rain back in Honey's day, you weren't showing people that you controlled the heavens. You were showing them a picture of yourself, merciful and gracious and full of blessing. Thank you that when the rains came, you got the glory. Thank you that when the lions couldn't eat, you got the glory. Thank you that when no one else knew the answer, you got the glory. Thank you that when three men defied an order to bow to an idol and instead continued to pray to the God of heaven, that you got the glory. God, you know what's in our circles. Some of them are huge. But in all of the things that we're praying for, help you, help us to help you be the center. Because really, Lord, when you get the glory, we all benefit from it. So Lord, answer according to your will and align our will with yours and help us, Father, to put you in the center of our circles. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and respond to the Lord this morning? Isn't it good to know we serve a faithful God? When we give him the glory, we all receive a blessing. That's the challenge for us, not just this week, friends. That's the daily challenge, to put him first and to trust him, that he's working it all together for our good. We may not always see it, but we can trust that when we make him the priority, that he lines everything else up according to his will. And his will is good and perfect, and we can trust him. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. If you are planning on staying for our town hall meeting, I'm going to invite you, if you're a parent, go grab your kiddos, bring them back in here. We're not going to be long, but we want to make sure that we take your questions in preparation for our annual business meeting. Go now in the peace and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are loved.